everybody. Welcome to North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Brohl. Please join me every month on the American Shoreline Podcast Network as we share the history, the extraordinary resource, and adventures of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. Be sure to check out the entire collection of podcasts on the ASPN related to our oceans, coasts, inland seas, and natural resources. Today's podcast is called The Great Portage of 1829, about the building of the Welland Canal around the vast Niagara Falls. I think you would all agree that Niagara Falls is an extraordinary natural wonder of the world. Did you know, though, that the Niagara Falls is really three falls? There is the American Falls and Bridal Veil Falls on the U.S. side, and Horseshoe Falls, mostly, in Canada. Niagara Falls was formed from the same glacial activity that formed the Great Lakes at the end of the last ice age, some 12,000 years ago. Geologically speaking, that's not really that long ago. Niagara Falls' vertical height is over 176 feet, that's over 53 meters, in some sections. Even though the height of Niagara Falls doesn't compare to Yosemite Falls in California, which is almost 2,500 feet tall, or over 760 meters, Niagara Falls makes up for it in horizontal size and in volume. More than 700,000 gallons of water per second pour over Niagara Falls, rushing over at about 25 miles per hour. That makes Niagara Falls the largest in North America by volume and by width. If you've ever had the opportunity to visit the falls on either side of the border, you can't help but be awed by the force of so much water finding its way from Lake Erie to Lake Ontario and eventually to the ocean. I'm sure you've heard about people who have tried to go over the falls in barrels or other means, which is both crazy and illegal. But did you know that fish often go over the falls too? But unlike some people, fish generally live to swim another day. So imagine when early explorers came upon these great falls. Now, many figures have been suggested at first have been suggested as first sharing a European eyewitness description of Niagara Falls. The Frenchman Samuel de Champlain visited the area as early as 1604 during his exploration of Canada, and member of his, uh, members of his party reported to him the spectacular waterfalls, which he then described in his journals. I've also read that the first European to document the area was a French priest, Father Louis Hennepin. During a 1678 expedition, he was overwhelmed by the size and significance of Niagara Falls. But who wouldn't be? It is fascinating to think that even in the 1600s, explorers could portage their way around Niagara Falls to further explore the Great Lakes. Today, large ocean-going cargo ships make their way around Niagara Falls through the Welland Canal on their way to ports in the Upper Great Lakes. On this podcast, we will talk to two folks who know a lot about the history of the Welland Canal and how it operates today. We have Miss Belle Bachman, who's a historian and interpreter of the Welland Canal and area. Welcome, Belle. Thank you. Happy to be here. And also with us is Mr. Benoit Nolet. He's the Senior Manager for Trade Relations and Compliance for the St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation in Canada. So glad you could join us, Benoit. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now with us as always is our trusty engineer, Tyler Buckingham. Hi, Tyler. What's shaking? Hey, Helen. Looking forward to another great show. Thank you. Well, I want to give a shout out to a podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, uh, which you co-founded. And this one is hosted by Admiral Tim Gallaudet. Now, he interviewed the famous oceanographer Bob Ballard, who discovered the Titanic. I just want to note that it was a really great interview of a fascinating guy, Tyler. It really was. I thought that uh, Admiral Gallaudet did an amazing job with that one. 
Yeah, um, there was a lot about Bob Ballard I didn't really expect. First of all, he was humble, um, uh, obviously knowledgeable, um, talked about kind of a, a minor licit, a learning disability that he overcame and really has done had extraordinary life. So uh, thank you for hosting that. I thought it was terrific. Tyler, you and I started off our last podcast by mentioning the Great Lakes wine we'd been sampling. And you noted that the Island Chablis came in a beautiful blue bottle. Well, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that I think the bottle was so pretty, I'm having a hard time recycling it. How about you? I still have mine as well. <laughs> have you stuck a candle in it like a Matus bottle and is it on your dining room table? I'm, I'm, uh, I think it's going to be my olive oil vessel. Oh, oh, that's a great idea. I know it's it sounds funny that we keep coming back to it, but it was it's really a pretty bottle uh, for wine. And uh, I mentioned last time that if you're a person who goes and uh, looks for beach glass, it's the kind of color of glass that you wish you would find. So I'm not suggesting that anybody break uh, these this bottles in the Great Lakes so we can all find it on the beach. But golly, it really is pretty. Well, I hope all our friends and followers of this podcast were able to listen to our last podcast called Climate Change and the Lake They Call Gitchigumi with Dr. Jay Austin from the University of Minnesota Duluth. Now, I quizzed you, Tyler, on what great lake is called Gitchigumi. But I, I honestly think after thinking about it, you were really teasing me when you said Lake Michigan and that you really knew it was Lake Superior all along. No. I genuinely didn't know that. Well, I, it makes sense uh, once you sang the song, but uh, no, I did not know that off the top of my head. <laughs> well, you do know now, as do our listeners. Uh, Dr. Austin shared his extensive research on Lake Superior and collaboration with other large lake researchers around the world, using these lakes as indicators of climate change. We also learned that there is passive acoustics research to listen to sounds in Lake Superior. Now, no surprise that they heard ships going by and they heard waves. But Dr. Austin indicated that they were hearing fish communicate. Uh, I was astounded by that, Tyler. What about you? That blew my mind, Helen. That was so cool. I mean, freshwater fish in Lake Superior communicating? I honestly uh, said, uh, we've got to hear more about that research and maybe have somebody on because um, I really want to know what that's about. Today's podcast of North Coast Chronicles is sponsored by the Shipping Federation of Canada voice of international shipping in Canada since 1903. The Federation represents owners, operators, and agents of ships involved in Canada's world trade. For more information, go to shipfed.ca. If you've been listening to North Coast Chronicles, you may recall that I mentioned that I had the opportunity to ride a cargo ship through the Welland Canal. I've been at other lock and dam systems, including the Panama Canal, but the Welland has always fascinated me. Mostly because how is it that ships got around the mighty Niagara Falls once upon a time? And how did this get built? Well, we have Belle Bachman with us, and she knows a lot about the Welland Canal. Hi, Belle. Thanks again for joining us. I'm very happy to be here. I'm always happy to talk about the Welland. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so um, I had read that well, even before the first Welland Canal was built, that some ships, you know, even did portage, even in the 1600s, around um, Niagara Falls to get to Lake Erie. Um, so how was it, I mean, it makes sense that they had to build something more practical. When did that first kind of get initiated? Well, there had always been a portage around Niagara Falls, even before European settlers arrived around here. Um, the river itself is impassable. Even without Niagara Falls in the middle, the rapids are impassable. So the uh, 
original people of the area who were the Atawandran and the Haudenosaunee, they used to portage everything around and a canoe as well. When the Europeans arrived, they continued with the portage, but they started to build uh, ships at the upper side, at the south end of the Niagara River, and they would portage material that came from overseas, from Europe mainly, um, up above Niagara Falls and reload it into uh, lake vessels. We would think of them sort of as canal ships these days, small vessels, but large enough to carry the supplies that the European supplies that they needed farther upland. So uh, first, let me excuse my Ohio accent, Bell, when I say portage instead of portage. It sounds a lot more uh, glamorous and interesting. Um, but um, so I had read that, um, you know, that there was an ocean going ship called the Griffin had made it up through around Niagara Falls all the way up to the lakes in the 1600s. So I thought that sounded astounding, but it sounds like it was, um, like you said, it had been done way before the European settlers had come into the area. Um, and then I also read that the first Welland was first built and completed in 1829. Now, in my head, I am thinking that's just right after the War of 1812. I mean, they're still using sails on ships, right? How could that have been done? So how did I mean, I've got I mean, I almost don't even know what to ask because, oh, my gosh, how did all that happen? It's a fascinating story. It developed gradually, obviously, not not overnight. But as you mentioned, what what would happen would people uh, would build ships like the Griffin um, and would transport them through the the upper lakes, bringing back cargo and coming back down. They tried all sorts of ways to figure a faster way to get around the falls. They used horse and wagon. They tried to do a railroad system where they would try to load a ship onto a rail and pull it up the escarpment. Didn't work very well. And finally, one of the veterans of the War of 1812, William Hamilton Merritt, um, had a mill in St. Catharines, which is a, uh, on the Ontario, Lake Ontario shoreline. And he was using the water that came down from the Niagara Scarpment uh, to uh, power his mills and discovered that at certain times he would lose water power, that there wasn't enough water coming. And he thought if he could find a way to bring a solid stream of water down over the escarpment, it would power the mills in St. Catharines where he lived. The problem was that that would take a lot of money, a lot of influence. And he knew that in order to do that, he had to have another uh, part of society get ex- as excited as he was with the idea of water pouring over the escarpment. So he talked to the shipping community and explained to them that what a great idea he had if they built some sort of passageway using as many of the waterways that existed and um, combining them, joining them in some way to make a steady, steady stream. And he went all over the place raising money for that. He went all over Canada. 
He went all over the United States. He went to Europe and he finally arrived um, in London at the Times office. And he simply spread out a map on the desk in front of the editor and said, this is Lake Ontario. This is Lake Erie. And this is where I want to build my canal. And the editor looked at it, thought it was a brilliant idea, did a lot of promotion through the times. And William Hamilton Merritt got enough money that he could start to build what he considered a private canal. Now, at the same time he was doing all of this fundraising and planning, the Erie Canal was being built in New York. And as you say, it was just after the hostilities of the War of 1812. And both sides of the river thought it would be a good idea to have access from all, let me start that again, both sides thought they would um, be better off to have complete access from their country through to the prairies without traveling across anyone else's territory. So while the Erie brought things uh, and vessels, mainly uh, barges from New York City through to Lake Erie and on, the Canadian side realized they had to somehow connect those two lakes in order to give them exclusive access without worrying about any more hostilities. Kind of a coincidence that, um, that it was really part of that Industrial Revolution that prompted the development. They needed water for power, power for the mills. Um, uh, Alexander Hamilton, another Hamilton, um, who was really the father of the U.S. Industrial Revolution, same kind of thing. You go to the falls in, in part of Jersey, you see water, you see power, you see mills. Um, it's something I, it makes sense. I think of things in the shipping realm, but it makes sense that, uh, that um, building, you know, power for the mills was, was one of the motivations. And yet, it was uh, had so much more um, value to it than just that. Interesting part about the Erie Canal. Would you say that the building of the of the uh, Welland Canal had anything to do with how the Erie Canal kind of petered out? Actually, part of the reason that both canals were being built had to do exactly with the Second Industrial Revolution, because there were so many people moving from the established colonies in the eastern part of North America moving west. And along with them, they had to have all of the materials they needed to settle properly out west. That meant they needed supply trains. They needed to have uh, manufacturing. They needed certainly to have wheat, flour, all of the bits and pieces that you would need to establish yourself in a new community. Even something as simple as salt, um, if you didn't know where to get salt, life became very difficult for you. You couldn't preserve your your food properly. Um, and without salt, we get sick, we die. So all of this sort of thing, they had to find some sort of transportation route that would give them a guaranteed supply route. And so the Erie was used for that. And the Welland certainly had something to do with that. But you mentioned earlier about sailing vessels and and um, the ships that came across the oceans and, and were doing trade up along the coastlines. Part of the reason the Welland was built 
in the way it was is because the Erie was considered a barge canal. In other words, to transport material from the East Coast, you had to offload it into barges, send the barges toward the West. When they got to whatever port they were going to, whether it was a Lake Erie port like Toledo or Detroit, or whether they were going all the way out to Duluth and Minnesota, they had to unload all of that material again and put it onto land transportation. Now, the advantage to having a sailing ship move all the way through the Great Lakes meant it saved all of that extra loading and unloading. It saved manpower. It saved time. So William Hamilton Merritt was quite insistent that his canal was would be for a sailing ship rather than a barge. And later on, when the fourth version of the canal was built, um, he they used specifically those words, the Welland Ship Canal, to differentiate it from the Erie. That's interesting. Uh, wouldn't have made that connection otherwise. So... I think it's, what, 87 feet or so that the Welland raises a ship above sea level. But you know, today, that doesn't sound like a lot. But boy, in the 1800s, that's a lot of feet. How did they begin doing it? And it sounds like this was not government funded, that it was totally privately funded. Is that correct? When William Hamilton Merritt began it, it was all private funding. Um, and I don't know if, if your listeners are aware of the Niagara Escarpment, but the Niagara Escarpment is a major uh, landmark across the eastern part, um, beginning in New York State. It starts there. It goes all the way through the Niagara Peninsula here in Ontario, up to um, uh, Michilimackinac, uh, down through Michigan. Even there's a piece of it around Chicago, even. So a huge land mass. And the difference between Lake Ontario and the top of the Niagara Escarpment is just shy of 100 meters. So that's 326 feet. Now, in order for you to move a ship up that height, you have to do it in steps. Particularly back in the 1800s, we're not talking about any kind of heavy machinery. The machinery was horsepower and men with shovels. Um, and so what they did was they built a series of steps up to the escarpment. So across the plain to the bottom of the escarpment, across the front of it at an angle, um, an incline, and then again from the top, a long straight uh, run toward Lake Erie. Now, in the first canal, it took them 40 steps to do that, one at each end, so at each of the ports. And the other um, 38 were to allow the canal to move up those incremental steps to the height of the Niagara Peninsula. There's also another little peninsula over toward the Lake Erie shore, the Onondaga Escarpment. Um, and it is a bit of a rise as well. So there are some, you're not talking just about the height of land, but you're also talking about the waterways and, you know, are they at the same height? How do you bridge the height between a uh, river that, that is running or a, a little stream? If, it, if in fact, in fact, that, let me start again. <laughs> so how do you differentiate between uh, a stream that you're incorporating into the canal that runs two feet higher 
than the one you're trying to connect it to. You're going to have to build in rapids. It was a problem. They worked at it for a very long time and through a number of different variations of routes to finally make it. They started building in uh, 1824, and the final connection wasn't complete until 1832. Um, And that would be almost a direct line from the port here in St. Catharines, Port Dalhousie, all the way through to uh, Port Colburn, which was Gravelly Bay in those days. So, Bill, why did they say it was uh, completed in 1829? Was that just like a, a part of it? First sections were, and as I said in the beginning, they were merely connecting waterways as well as they could with this ditch. Um, And there is a waterway that comes out at Chippewa above the falls. And the ships did go through that little river as as opposed to going all the way to Lake Erie. Uh, But they had to be able to tow those ships all the way from the mouth of the of Chippewa Creek, all the way up to Lake Erie. That was a time waster. To get from St. Catharines to Buffalo in those days, it took three days on a ship going through the Welland Canal. But I, I think three days sounds pretty reasonable when you think about just the phenomenal um, of moving with their 40 locks, you said, back then? 40. Mm-hmm. And we're talking, the movement, of course, is horsepower, literally horsepower, two miles an hour. Um, and it's about considering the uh, the, the curves of the uh, canal. It would have been about forty miles, but they didn't go at night. They didn't travel at night, um, and they had to do a lot of changes of teams of horses, of course, to get through the to get through there. They would stop. Um, one of the local stops was at Barnes Winery. Um, and you know, the captain would go in and get a little case of, uh, you know, cask of something nice. Um, they would stop at all of the little towns on the way to do some trading, to pick up passengers, to drop off passengers. Um, and so, yeah, three days was a, a significant amount of time. They were very proud of it, mind you, that they finally had managed a way to get from one lake to the other. But of course, during that, they just about went broke and they had to get the Ontario government or the Canadian government at that time it was even before Canada was a uh, was a country. It was uh, part of uh, the British colony at that time, and so they had to get money from them in order to support the completion of the canal. And of course, they used they used wooden locks, and you know what happens when wood gets wet and dry and wet and dry. It doesn't last very long, um, and the the banks. Um, were made were just earthen banks, and so there would be slippages. Um, you couldn't steer very well if you were being drawn um, by a team of horses. There were lots of crashes into gates and damage of that sort. So it wasn't easy by any means um, traveling that length. It would take perhaps a half an hour at each lock, and we're talking thirty-eight locks. But but still, if you look from beginning to end, that's eight years. Eight years to build 40 locks, to go over 300 feet um, and in, a, in an escarpment. Help me understand how they built it back then with just the basic tools. That goes back to the Erie. The Erie was being built before the, canal, before the Welland Canal was begun. And at the time that they were considering starting the Welland, the Erie was just wrapping down. 
And so the workers, most of them were Irish navvies from the word navigation. Um, and they simply moved across the border. They picked up their their families and they shipped across the border to Canada. And William Hamilton Merritt was happy to see them. They were experienced with building canals. And many of the experts that he brought in, his contractors, some of them were also from the Erie. Um, Orson Phelps was a major uh, contractor for William Hamilton Merritt, and he was from New York State. So they did manage to find experts in the field simply because they had had practice just across the river at the Erie. Well, that's kind of fascinating when you think about the competition uh, and the workers went from one place to another, but great for the Welland Canal to have access to, to um, experienced workers. I mean, we're basically talking about people with picks and axes, right, and shovels. That's exactly what we're talking about. And uh, most of them, not all of them, but most of them were Irish immigrants who had left Ireland. The potato famine had driven a lot of them out. And they arrived in North America without any family, had to find find a way to establish themselves. Most of them were illiterate. Um, and so one of the easiest ways to get a job was to be willing to, you know, roll up your sleeves and go out and do some hard physical labor. Now, most of these uh, Irish laborers, have they brought a lot of their Irish traditions with them, shall I say. I'm trying to be delicate in a way here to imply that they also brought some prejudices. And so during the time that the Irish were working on the Welland Canal, there were a number of battles that were fought between the men from Cork and the men from Connaught. They were fighting over jobs. They fought over religion. They fought over just about everything. Um, they lived in what were really shanty, shanty town. Uh, they would get the leftovers from the sawmills. So cork, um, the pieces of planking that were warped, all of that sort of thing they would grab and they would build their homes out of it. Earthen floors, a fire pit in the middle, um, usually lots of kids. Uh, and it was very difficult uh, for William Hamilton Merritt to control the workforce. It was said that, you know, in certain areas, um, it was always a Catholic who would be the lock tender. In other sections of the canal, it would always be the Protestant. If you went away, you might come back an hour later and find a rather bruised guy of a different religion running the lock. It was that, it was that brutal. They were fighting literally to stay alive. What a rough life. I would imagine, though, that some of the culture and traditions that they brought with them have remained in the area. Certainly. Um, they, there are a lot of descendants, uh, Irish descendants, certainly living in this area. And they built the first Catholic church literally by hand. They built the first church. I'm not saying that, you know, they supported it. They literally built it nail by nail. They had a number of priests who actually became social workers, if you like, or, uh, you know, would, would get out whenever there was one of these disruptions and break up the trouble. I'm not saying that was the only, you know, any only good thing they brought to the, to the district. It certainly wasn't, but it was probably what they were best known for at the time. 
we have some families here who have been maybe seven generations down from lock tenders on the Welland Canal. Well, a, a proud t- tradition for sure. And the, the first Welland Canal, um, how big was it? Like how big of a ship could actually get through it? The ships were the sailing vessels. If you've seen the tall ships, that's the kind of ship we're talking about. Not one of the big four-masted ones, but a, a two or, th- or three-masted small vessel. Um, they couldn't have a very uh, low draft. In other words, they had to be a shallow vessel because Literally, they were sailing in a ditch. They weren't joking when they called these canals ditches, Clinton's Ditch and Merritt's Ditch. That's all they were. They were maybe nine feet deep. Um, They were built to fit the ship. So in other words, we're talking something not even 100 feet long. The locks weren't meant to last forever. They had constant replacement uh, done to them. And also... As things got more and more advanced, as the Industrial Revolution uh, started to advance more, we got new technologies. They could build the ships bigger, but they wouldn't fit in the locks. So that brought in the second version of the Welland Canal, in which they built them huge. They thought these are going to be massive locks, um, and they built them out of stone this time. How big was the second set then compared to the first? The length was... 33 feet um, for the first, 33 feet long. The second was 45 feet long. By the time we're getting up to the third, we're getting very long. We're getting 82 feet. But between the first and the second, technology came in. We had steam engines that could be installed in vessels. So no longer now are we talking sailing vessels. Now we're morphing into a steam-powered vessel. They needed to be bigger simply because of the equipment they were carrying on board them, the machinery. Um, And we also got tugs. So we had the strange vision of tugs pulling uh, a lot of sailing vessels, like little toys attached by ropes behind it. Um, sort of bobbing in the water behind them. Once we get beyond that, we're talking the Welland Ship Canal. And that happens uh, before the First World War um, and the construction paused during the war and came back. And by 1932, we had the fourth version of the canal, which is the one that exists today. So between, in a hundred years, we go from the very short 33 foot up until the very large, uh, the uh, 760 foot locks that we have now. Thank you. Um, it, I, I still find it phenomenal. Um, I can, at, 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 at what point did they stop using um, horses to pull the ships in? Was that between the first and the second locks? That would be uh, during the second because as soon as the tugs arrived, they didn't need the horses anymore. Um, So there were still some old sailing vessels that were using the canal for that purpose. They needed the the, uh, tow horses. But by the time tugs became ubiquitous, then no more horses. They were gone. Uh, The tug was more reliable. It didn't need to have all of the auxiliary things, the stabling, the um, the tow boys that they had to pay. Um, it would work whatever the weather. It didn't have trouble in the rain. It didn't have trouble 
um, in a, in the heat. So yes, by the time of the third canal, we were pretty much into full steam power. So the current locks that operate today were finished in 1932. 1932 is the official opening. In fact, it had been in use for about two years by that time. The official opening was in 32. So let's go to Mr. Benoit Nolet from the St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation in Canada. Tell us a little bit about the St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation for people who weren't familiar. What is it? The St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation is uh, the one that uh, operates the Canadian locks. So there are 13 Canadian locks that span between Montreal and Lake Ontario, Lake Erie, sorry. Um, and it's, uh, it's a system that is uh, a binational system. So it's actually uh, operated also uh, in partnership with the uh, U.S. side, which is the Great Lakes Seaway system, uh, which operates uh, two locks that are on the American side uh, near Messina, New York. Thank you. And um, so you're in trade relations and compliance. So let's talk about the trade relations, uh, because um, what we're understanding is that, um, I mean, the Welland Canal or the even the locks on the St. Lawrence River had to have really changed the perspective on trade, international trade for Canada, certainly the U.S., but let's talk about the Canadian side. And it's probably back then and no less today. So we talked about, um, Bell talked about, you know, the small ships and um, why this began. Um, but uh, uh, is the lock and dam system um, at the Welling Canal or even on the St. Lawrence River, is it also providing some, some um, water uh, power um, generation? Yeah, absolutely. So we we do have weirs that, uh, you know, have the option of passing water if we're not passing water through the locks. The weirs historically were just discharging water. Uh, but in the last 10 years or so, uh, there's been some uh, hydro generation uh, power plants that were installed there to actually use the 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 drop to to power um you know some of the some of the housing around the uh, municipalities that uh, bell mentioned earlier uh, the welland canal is, is is shouldered by a few municipalities so it's very easy for us to hook up to the local grids and and provide green power and get green credits for it uh, to the uh, to the local uh, dwellings well, that's a great uh, sustainable energy story. Um, so a, a positive there as well. So um, if the St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation is a government entity, a Canadian government entity, is that correct? It uh, The assets are owned by uh, Transport Canada. We, the St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation, manage, maintain, and operate the equipment. So we don't own it. We operate it on behalf of Transport Canada. So in a sense, it's not a direct government entity. It's a not-for-profit corporation. Ah, got it. Thank you. Um, and Bell talked about how um, from the first lock to the second, you had technology come in. You know, we're long, no longer using um, um, uh, wood just to, to um, outline a lock. You're now getting into concrete, I guess. So, um, uh, but are the, tell me, tell me what what the Welland is like today. If we were to ride a ship through it, what would it be like? What would we see? Well, you would see a great contrast between the old original heritage equipment shoulder to shoulder with some of the best technology in the world. And, and I'll explain to you what I mean by this. Uh, we have bridges that allow trains and, and vehicles to cross the canal. So these bridges have to lift out of the way to, uh, to allow vessels to go through. These bridges, although they were built in the 30s, still operate with the same machinery, the same counterweights and ropes and pulleys that, uh, that they had originally. Of course, they've been refurbished, but it's the same concept of very basic 
basic engineering that works very well today. It's kind of like a forever known principle. And shoulder to shoulder to that, you would have uh, hands-free mooring, for example. Hands-free mooring is uh, using vacuum technology to secure vessels inside the locks. Um, the St. Lawrence Seaway as the only place where deep locks actually utilize vacuum to secure vessels and, and walk them through the, the lockage process from beginning to end. So we're very proud to have that as, as being the pioneer in, in new technology. Um, and as we see, uh, you span around when you're when you're out of lock, you would see what we call auto positioning or vessel self spotting. Uh, it's a it's a display board that shows a countdown of how far the vessel still has to go to end up where it needs to stop, which is what we call the final mooring position. So you would see a countdown of 75 meters, 74, 73, all the way to zero to help the captains know where they are because there's very little uh, benchmarks or references visually uh, for the vessels to, to go by when they enter the locks. Um, Bell mentioned the dimensions of, uh, you know, the historical uh, Welland Canals, uh, today's canal, uh, you know, there's there's very little room, and and we've really pushed the envelope. So challenging uh, the limits of of what we can fit inside a lock. Our, our locks are seven seven hundred and sixty seven feet long. We allow vessels in that are seven hundred and forty feet long. So that that leaves very li little wiggle room for vessels to stop on a dime and stay where they are once they stop. But here's where it gets fun. The the vessels at their widest are seventy eight feet wide the locks are 80. So that leaves one foot on each side of, of tolerance for the vessels to, to get inside the lock and, and actually, you know, fit perfectly in. You made the analogy earlier, uh, you talked about wine. Um, you made the analogy of, uh, you know, wine. And, and if you if you look at, if you ever bottled your own wine, and, and most of us have, and, and your bottle is a little bit too full when you go to cork it, when you pull down the lever, there's a good chance that there's going to be a wine splashing on your ceiling. The same symptoms or the same concept happens with uh, with vessels trying to get into the lock, where as they're entering the lock, they're basically corking the lock and emptying it and leaving very little water in the inside the lock when they're occupying it. So you can just imagine how fast this water is shooting out of the lock when the vessel is actually just crawling into it. And it's it's a it's a fascinating thing to notice when you're actually having uh, the luxury of, of transiting through on board a vessel. Well, you know, Tyler um, has started making wine, but I don't know if he's to the lever uh, stage yet. So I think he has yet to learn about that. Um, but uh, so, so I'm just imagining displacing all that water, right? So you, especially when a ship is fully loaded, you've got a ship coming in one foot on each side, right? Not too much before and after. Um, and you're trying to displace all that water. So what kind of pressure does that put on the lock canal? And how do you, you know, how, how do you manage that to make sure that it keeps its um, uh, integrity, its uh, stability and integrity? Yeah, it's. It, it, I mentioned the contrast between you know the old heritage and and the new technology. The old principle of of working by gravity is is what's on full display at the Welling Canal. Uh, there isn't a single pump that pumps water to help raise the vessel. So everything is done by gravity, even to this day. So you can just imagine how heavy water has to be to to raise vessels that uh, can carry up to thirty five thousand tons of cargo. 
to be able to lift them. So that, that pressure obviously is supported by concrete walls. They're gravity sections, so they're kind of like somewhat thin at the top, but, but they go down in stairs to have uh, very stable gravity um, stability uh, at the base of the wall to to take that pressure. And that concrete uh, that we that we have in there is is in the locks is is the 1930s type type of concrete. Uh, it got its facelift uh, in between 1987 1993, which was a rehabilitation program. So most of the locks that you will see as you transit through the Welling Canal has been refaced in the late 80s, early 90s. I think when I went through the Welling Canal, you were still using linesmen to moor the ship. So tell me about vacuum mooring. I mean, is that something like literally you're suctioning the ship to the side? How does that work? It is. Um, line handlers are there to secure the vessel. If you can just imagine the turbulence that vessels are, are subjected to inside a lock, um, a vessel would raise 14 meters or about 45 feet in the span of about 10 minutes. So it's very, very turbulent. So the past uh, requirement was to have line handlers uh, receive lines from the vessels and put them on bollards so that the vessel can secure itself as it's going up or down the, the locks. What we have done is uh, we were seeing issues with uh, the use of, uh, of lines, and we were seeing that some of those lines in the mooring wires were on average uh, breaking one every 13 days of operation. And when a mooring wire breaks, it's, it's, it's an inch and a half in diameter under tension, and it's a steel wire. It has the ability to, to kill someone. It's very, very dangerous. So we wanted to look at ways to eliminate that hazard from our workplace and to look for a more efficient blockage process because uh, it takes time to hoist the, the wires up on top when the vessel's at the bottom and cast them off and so on. So we looked at, uh, at what technology was out there and we saw that vacuum technology was being used at some ports but not in any locks in the world they were used at ports in australia new zealand uh saudi arabia and so on and we thought well what if we could use that vacuum technology inside locks so there were technology technological challenges to to make this work but it is uh strictly using vacuum pads that uh, for the sake of the of discussion the size of your kitchen table <laughs> and they're they're vertical and they extend horizontally to mate with the flat surface of the hull of the vessels that go through our our system today wow i actually would really love to see that that's fascinating uh, um it's hard to imagine because it, if you haven't been on one of these ships, and I realize that the ships that go through the Great Lakes are not as big as some of the container ships on the coast. Got it. But believe me, when you're standing next to one, you're on the dock standing next, it's a pretty big ship, right? There's a, there's a lot of freeboard there, a, a, a lot of sides to that ship. It's pretty tall, pretty long, pretty big. So I'm having a hard time imagining that you have a suction that could, you know, suction something so big or vacuum something so big that it holds. So I, I'm assuming you have a, a, a succession of them along the walls? Yes. So every lock has six vacuum pads that are, like I said, about the size of your kitchen table. Uh, each pad has a holding power of 20 tons. So you have a holding power of 120 tons. And believe me, you need that 
uh, to go through the lockage process. Um, so that's that's what we use. Uh, you would see them as three double units. So they would be at the center line, um, you know, midship uh, when the vessel's in the lock, and you would have one 25 meters upstream and the other one is 25 meters downstream. So these three units of two pads each would extend uh, about six feet into the lock, capture the vessel, hold it into position, and proceed with the lockage. And when, uh, when the lockage is complete, we release to atmospheric pressure and the pads detach and recess and the vessel is, is good to go. Not a single mooring line is, is handled through the process. The Welland Canal has how many uh, canals, or, or excuse me, locks to it? The Welland Canal has eight locks. It's uh, locks one to eight, where locks four, five, and six are actually twin locks, or we call them the flight locks, like a flight of stairs. Meaning there's a, there's a, a series of locks four, five, six upbound and four, five, six downbound. And that's because they would have to be really, really close to each other because that's where the equivalent of the escarpment is in the Welland Canal. So you don't have the luxury of having vessels meet. So if we if we had locks four, five, six singles, then one vessel would take a long time to get through this cluster of locks. So we, they've been they've been built as twin locks from the original date. Yeah, that that's very interesting. Um, how long are there uh, uh, transit numbers? How long have you been keeping transit numbers, number of ships through, tonnage through, um, historically for the Welland? Oh, for as long as we've been open. Uh, electronically, it's it's been just, uh, you know, in the last 20 years or so. But yeah, we've always kept track of our, of our transit, our transit times, uh, delays. You know, we have uh, a high, heavily uh, detailed system of measurement indicators, of course. But I'm curious how things have changed. You know, you went from there were 40 locks back, right, in the old days. Um, you're now down to well, eight locks, and of three of which are, I guess, parallel locks or twin locks. And then, um, when did like what kind of tonnage numbers? How long? How far back? Have you been keeping numbers on the Welland? Uh, we've been keeping numbers for decades, but I think the interesting part is, is that in the 70s we were uh, we were a lot busier uh, cargo wise than we are today, even though the vessels were smaller. And, and the reason was that the economy was booming a lot more than than today, and as well uh, the. Marine was a, a pretty sexy alternative where today it's not, you know, door to door is more sexy. Just in time is more sexy. So we have to, we have our work cut out for us from the, from the Marine industry to get back into that level. So in the seventies, we would have something like 80 million ton, uh, is, is close to our record, uh, for one year today. We're more than, you know, roughly around 40 million. So we're running at about 50% capacity. Uh, the the vessel that would enter the Welland Canal would be in the Welland Canal for about uh, 12 hours. And this is longer than what uh, historically older, smaller vessel uh, would have been able to do uh, because of that piston effect that I described to you earlier, uh, where the tolerances have gotten so tight that vessels have to go slower now, even though they carry more cargo. They have to go a little bit slower to avoid the piston, counter the piston effect, and avoid the the bat tub effect that occurs in the lock when they enter too fast. Yeah, makes sense. Um, but I'm wondering, given the fact that there is congestion um, on the west and the east coast these days with uh, waterborne trade, um, I'd heard that perhaps some folks were starting to charter ships to head directly into the Great Lakes to try to avoid some of that. Are you seeing any of that or hearing about it? 
we are seeing and we're we're excited to see that there's some some business uh, being drummed up of uh, of containers uh you see the containers coming in on on vessels but sadly they drop off at the coast and they get on trucks which is not the most efficient fuel wise uh you know way to 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 carry uh, to their destination so what we want to see is is some of those uh containers to actually make their way into lake erie and and discharge there closer to their their end destination we're seeing quite a bit of of uh, new business being drummed up that way and we're very excited about it isn't there a, a dedicated container line service to cleveland um and they would have to go through the welland canal i would imagine that's doing well. I'm, I think I've heard rumor that they are going to charter another ship because of that direct, you know, uh, trying to avoid some congestion going direct in. Um, any truth to that? Yeah, yeah. They're gaining momentum. There's a second route that, that's uh, being developed. Uh, and as well, uh, there's uh, competition to that business developer as well that's, uh, that's gaining some, some traction. So it's, it's good. It's healthy. And I think uh, everyone's going to benefit from, benefit from that. I'm, I'm going to ask a sidebar question. Do you get many cruise ships through? We did historically in the recent years. Uh, we're about to see a huge ramp up uh, in this in starting this uh, this May. Actually, uh, there's uh, Viking cruises. I'm sure you've heard of Viking cruises. They're more like the river cruise in Europe, but they're uh, actually starting to to pl plan some voyages in the upper lakes. So they will be coming through the Welland Canal. The two vessels that are being built by uh, Viking is actually, are actually uh, built to tolerances, meaning Seaway Max uh, beam. Um, and they will be coming in and there'll be regular routes uh, in the upper lakes and they're coming in uh, our system and then are going to exit at the end of, uh, of the navigation season to do other routes uh, for the rest of the year. So yes, uh, we'll, we'll see an increase in, in, uh, in pleasure crafts for sure. How cool is that? You know, I'd love to. I'd love to get in one of those because um, uh, I do. I, I'm a believer. You can't see enough of the Great Lakes, and there's just so many beautiful places. Um, and and let me just mention um, that St. Catharines, Ontario. That area is just so beautiful, uh, and charming, and interesting. And um, gosh, I you know I talk about the Great Lakes Circle Tour quite a bit, and um, I I think if one were to do that. You really need to make your way um, towards that part. I mean, there's oh, so many beautiful parts of Canada, but it's a very charming um, area. And you can go visit the Welland Canal, yes, and kind of see a ship come through. Absolutely. And and Belle would be the great spokesperson of the Lock 3 uh, Welland Canal Museum, which has an observation platform and interactive maps to tell you when the next ships are coming. And, and you can have some uh, great uh, photo op uh, at uh, at deck level almost in, in, in some cases. So yeah, uh, but the, the whole Welland Canal has a bike path alongside from Lake Erie to Lake Ontario. And you would see, uh, you know, people from afar, just as well as the local community people um, picnicking there you know, and, and taking some pictures of the, uh, of the vessels as they silently glide through the communities without making any uh, impact on, on the businesses. So negative impact on the business, I should say. Um, Bell, um, do you think that William Hamilton Merritt, uh, you know, I, I see that he, he lived to be until 1862 and we were talking about the timelines for the, the canals. So he got to see it grow a little bit. Yes. Yes, he did. He um, he was involved with the canals all of his life. And he literally, he was traveling uh, back and forth to Montreal often. And he actually died on board one of the vessels moving back and forth. Um, 
So he lived literally on the canal. One of the things that I, I did want to say, you, you mentioned how interesting it would be to watch a ship go through. I had a friend from uh, out in British Columbia who moved to this area for business and was quite startled one day to be out driving and notice a ship going through a field. And it actually struck him wordless. He couldn't speak. Um, to appreciate how big these vessels are, imagine uh, twice the length of a football field. That's what we're talking about here. And to see one just sort of cruising past you um, through a field is quite awesome. It really is. My favorite kind of vision, though, is when you go to a place like Lock 3, um, which is where I have most of my shipping experience, um, and you go up on the viewing platform and you watch a ship come in upbound from Lake Ontario. It's coming up through the channel and into the lock, squeezing in. And the lock gates close and it slowly starts to rise. And you're looking down trying to see if you can see what's inside the vessel. You know, maybe there's a hold open or something. We can see what it's carrying. And it rises up and, and then, you know, you're sort of level with where the captain and uh, and the uh, the crew are standing there in the deck. And, and then it goes up higher. And all of a sudden they're looking down at you. And it goes up even higher. Um, and that's when you appreciate how big these monsters are. These aren't just, you know, a sailing ship. These are huge, monstrous uh, vessels um, that are much larger than most people imagine them to be. The advantage of being at a place like Lock 3 is that you can often talk with a deckhand if they're out on the deck. Um, you can ask them where they're going, what they're carrying, um, where are they coming from? Have they had good weather? When I was a kid, I literally grew up uh, on the banks of the second canal, which was abandoned by the time I was around, but with water still flowing through the empty locks. And, um, when I was a kid, we used to go out to the well and ship canal and call up to the sailors and they would throw out coins. They're not allowed to do that anymore. I'm correcting uh, correcting the question before anybody asks. No, you can't do that anymore. Um, but there is a magic. There is still a romance to sailing. And to watch one of these vessels move, the huge size of it, and as Benoit said, the, the exacting uh, dimensions that they have to work with. Literally, you look, you look down and there's barely enough, you know, enough room to to put your hat between the side of the wall and the and the side of the vessel, it is really something to see. And, but the architecture of the locks is what I like. I like to look at the shapes of the bridges and the kinds of bridges. From lock three, you can look up. You can see the flight locks off to your right. You can see uh, the surge tower at the power station that runs the entire system. You can see that from where you are. You can look down the other way. You can see a, a, a bascule bridge, which is like a, a knife folding bridge. You can see the skyway um, above the tallest of the tall ship's mass going through 125 feet. Uh, it is that kind of sort of a purity 
of uh, architecture that I like. I can see what they did in the 1920s, but I can appreciate what they're doing now in the 2000s. And it's that kind of, of uh, contrast, that sharp contrast between, you know, a, uh, a bridge that's operated with um, uh, massive pieces of concrete and yet a vessel being moved by or being lifted by vacuum. Uh, you know, it's just amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Well, I can appreciate the charm and the dichotomy of, of, a, of a, a canal system um, that was really finished um, quite a few years ago, 1932, um, and how um, a lot of the same technology applies, but you have, you know, modern applications. So, you know, like you said, you get to see some of the charm of, of, of old, you know, of, of uh, old technologies, but not old, of, of old architecture, like you said, with modern technologies, which I think just adds to the charm of the whole thing. So, Belle, how does somebody get to Lock 3? How do they find it? Uh, if you're traveling along the main highway, which is the Queen Elizabeth Way, east or west, you'll see, you'll see the signs that will direct you directly to Lock 3. Uh, there is another viewing platform at Lock 7. It doesn't have um, a raised platform, but it's also a place that you can go and watch the ships. Unfortunately, you can't predict ahead of time when a ship's going to be there. You know, people say, well, I want to come next Wednesday. Well, next Wednesday, we don't really know what's going to be in the canal next Wednesday. There might be 10 ships, there might be none. Um, and that's because they're all self-powered. They all have uh, contracts to meet. So, you know, the same ship might be going upbound one day and downbound the next, or it might be three weeks before you stay, see the same ship, or it might not come back at all. So there are, uh, there's a lot of variety, a variation rather, in, in what kinds of vessels you're going to see and when they're going to arrive. You can contact the Seaway online on their online thing. There's a, uh, a button you can click, which takes you to marine traffic. And it will show you on a map where all the vessels are and which direction they're headed. So you can get an idea of where they might be. Um, but if you keep in mind that from the lower uh, lock, lock one, up to lock seven, um, that takes approximately six hours. So, and it's only, it's four miles. So if you have a car, you can shoot up and down on the parkway. Um, and see the vessels where they are, uh, which is kind of fun. There is a museum at Lock 3, which would give you a lot of history as well. So if you do have a wait before the next vessel comes by, uh, Lock 3 can, can handle that for you as well. Uh, the, the advantage of a, a place like Lock 3 is that they can have, they'll have guides, they'll have interpreters that can give you all of the information. You know, this ship is going to come in. This is how old it is. This is where it was built. This is the cargo it will be carrying, and this is where it's going. It'll give you all of that info. Um, and it's nice to be able to talk to a person and, and be able to ask questions right away because there's lots of questions. Benoit, um, what is the future of the Welland Canal? And I suppose it's something that can't be uh, described without thinking about the entire seaway system. But 
What is the future of the Welland Canal? Do you think it'll be updated again? Uh, there's been a study that was done in the early 2000, and basically the outcome was that we should maximize what we have. So as you can see from the tolerances of the vessel, it's very difficult to maximize more. Uh, but there's some work that can be done with the draft. Uh, we have uh, a depth of about 30 feet, and we allow vessels to draft at 26 feet 9 inches. Uh, we're looking at what could be done to increase that, uh, to allow vessels to draft a little bit deeper. Uh, we're also looking at season extension, uh, meaning closing later into the the later part of December, early January, and opening early uh, when it's possible. Uh, you know, Mother Nature tells us when it is or when it's not. Um, but we see that the uh, Sioux locks in Sault Ste. Marie uh, are usually around the January 15th to March 25th timeline. So we're we're looking at doing this this replication of dates. Uh, so th that's what we're looking at, is, is deepening the, the allowed draft and, and lengthening the season. We could not do it without the Welland Canal. It's an extraordinary story and an engineering marvel. Thank you, Bill Bachman. Thank you, uh, Benoit Nolet, for joining me today. And thanks uh, all to all our listeners for joining us. And thank you to the American Shoreline Podcast Network for hosting North Coast Chronicles. I'd love to hear from our listeners. Send me your comments, ideas for future podcasts, or to be a sponsor to northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. The views of this podcast are mine and do not necessarily reflect the views of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Join us on the next episode of North Coast Chronicles as we investigate the silent watchkeepers, lighthouses of the Great Lakes, with Wayne Sapolsky of the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association. Until then, be good to one another. Thank you. <laughs>